Okay, it's good to be with you again. I have been traveling a lot, and so in the last two weeks I have been worshiping first in Brussels, then in New York, and then in Lafayette, Louisiana. Three different churches, different denominations, but the same Lord. And I have felt the presence of Holy Spirit in, in all of these, so, so different ways of worship in all of these. But the same, being part of the same family and sharing the same faith. It's so important for me, so always when I travel, I seek some church and, and take my time, time for every, every Sunday and every possible opportunity to, to be with, with my fellow brothers and sisters. But today I'm, I'm with you, and my theme is, is, is seen in the, in the slides there, so resurrection as a proof of God's absolute sovereignty. And this theme came to my mind when I visited a special place here in Tampere, so a couple of years ago, a dear brother, Aya, passed away, and, and I have a habit, so I every now and then go and see the place where his earthly body is, is laying. He is now with the God. And there when I was praying and thanking God for the great memories that I have of the dear brother Aya, who is now already there with the Lord, so... I decided that I will speak about resurrection to you. It's an important theme, and, and hope I can I can share something something from God's heart to encourage you in in your walk of faith here. So let's read First Corinthians fifteen, twelve to twenty-eight. This is the passage that we will go through quite detailed today, so let's read first it through and, and, and then continue with it. But if it preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But it's in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, 
so that God may be all in all. I'm talking about enemies also today. And we have some, we as Christians, we have some enemies. A lot of our fellow Christians are really persecuted. I have known many who have even been killed because of their faith. And it's so sad that at the very moment thousands of Christians are really risking their lives when they go to worship God. They have to do it secret. We can come here publicly. Nobody is really offending us. Perhaps you are a little bit teased, but I can guarantee that the persecution that you are meeting here in Finland is nothing compared to what many, many of our brothers are facing. And I know that this case might, might, might be true for some of your relatives at the very moment. It's good to remember to pray for the suffering church. False teachers could be your enemies. Pray for me that I wouldn't be one of those today. Pray, pray truly that the Holy Spirit is speaking through me that I don't teach any, any false doctrine to you. Of course, our biggest enemy is Satan. He's the enemy of God. He's really trying to orchestrate all kind of different harm to you, physical, especially spiritual harm. And he is there, truly using whatever means he can find out to destroy your faith to God. And he knows your weaknesses, and he's using your weaknesses, especially. He's the master of temptation. He's the liar. Today I'm mostly talking about these two enemies who are directly related to the Satan. Sin is a great enemy. We all know how difficult it is to fight against sin. We have different temptations, different types of sins that we are facing and seeing in our lives. And I know from my own experience and from experiences of so many of my brothers and sisters that we so make so strong decisions that now it's over. I will never do it again. And unfortunately, we quite often face that, oh dear, I did it again. And then we repent and try to be strong and fail again. But praise God, he is merciful. And the, sin, uh, and the blood of Jesus Christ is still cleansing your sins, even those ones that you are doing again and again. But still we are called to live a holy life and we are called to really fight against, against sin. Death is a great enemy. I know so many who are afraid of, of, of death. I felt it truly this week when I was flying from Dallas to to, to uh, de Gaulle, uh, Charles de Gaulle, Paris, and when they announced that something is wrong in the plane, I saw the panic in the plane when people really, they started to panic there. Will the plane drop down? Nothing happened, praise God. But I saw how people can be afraid of death. And I have to admit that also it came to my mind, okay, is this now the end? But still I knew that if it will be the end, I will 
meet my Savior. But still, it's, it's natural to be scared of or afraid of death. And sin and death are really highly related. Actually, sin caused death. The God's original plan when he created the first human beings was that they will never die. But through the, the sin of Adam and Eve, also the death entered the world. Therefore, uh, Romans 5 and 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, also death through sin. So sin came through Adam and Eve. Then death was the result. And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. I could also add here one more enemy. The biggest enemy for me is myself. But I will talk more about that in some other sermon if Vesavil still gives, gives me the chance to preach here. My question to you is that are you an overcomer? When you see these enemies, how do you feel? Are they too great? Impossible to overcome? Impossible to have triumph over? And it's so sad that so few Christians live as true overcomers. But my message to you today is that your Christian life is characterized by victory. This is the true character of Christian life. Why so? You will hear soon. Your Christian life is not supposed to be characterized by defeat. But if this is not your experience today, if this is not my experience today, then we have much, much to learn. But it's possible to be a true overcomer. Revelations 12 and 11 tells about people who triumph over him, the dragon, the Satan there, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of the testimony. There is the secret, blood of the Lamb. There is the victory. And today we have this holy table here. We can participate in the table. Remember what Jesus did. And we can proclaim victory today. And let's do it. My claim for you today is that you are an overcomer. Because God is sovereign over all enemies. Even over sin and death. You are an overcomer. You have victory. Not in you. But because Jesus... Because God has conquered sin, death, all the enemies. So some background of, of the scripture that we just read. So the first Corinthians was written to the church of Corinth. It's there in the southern part of, of Greece. So Paul, Apostle Paul, when he was traveling, he went up there and founded a church. And there in this map you see also some other churches which, uh, where Paul sent his letters. The city of Corinth, it was quite a great city in, in many ways. Politically very important. So it was the capital city of the Roman province of Achaia, which basically covers the whole area of, of current Greece. So a huge area, the capital of it. So important people were, were living there. It was a great commercial center, 
So from the map you can see that you can have a great shortcut from the Asia part to the Adrian Sea towards Italy. You didn't have to go round all the way to the, to, by, the, by the end end of Greece, but you get a shortcut there. You could save a lot of time by by moving that direction. So many many goods were traveling through Corinth, and that meant meant that it was great commercial center. We don't know really how many people were living there at that at, at that time. So the estimates really have huge gaps. So the smallest one that I found was 100,000, and biggest one 600,000 people. But but big one any, any, anyhow in in for, for that time period. It was not a great city in, in many other ways, because it was a very sinful city. Even the city name was used in a number of words. So the word Corinthian, how to pronounce this, Corinthian, nice, means to, have, to make some act of immorality. And if you said that somebody is a Corinthian girl, that means a prostitute. And in many other ways this city was a sinful city, city of corruption. And many temples, pagan temples, were there. I already said that the church was founded there by Paul, and Paul visited it a couple of times, but he also sent their letters. And the first Corinthians was sent some 25 years after the Jesus' crucifixion. After that, Paul sent at least two more letters to Corinth, Perhaps three, one is lost, or two are, two are lost. We know only the two letters, first and second Corinthians from the Bible. Between them, there is one letter that Paul calls painful letter, where he has used some very, very harsh words. So perhaps, perhaps that was good that we don't, we don't have it, have it, we can't read it. It would be lovely to, to read it. Also, we know that some of, of the letters of Paul are, are, are not found. But we don't need them. I truly believe that the Holy Spirit then he only, not only inspired Paul and other writers of the, of the Bible to write what he wanted, but also he kept exactly those letters that we are needing. So when the canon of the Bible was formed, so the Holy Spirit was in charge. So we don't have to be worried of, of these letters. So it was only 25 years back when Jesus was died and crucified and resurrected. And there were several hundreds of eyewitnesses of Jesus after his death. And some of them were even living in this area or visiting this area. So these guys, they, they clearly remembered the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't have any doubt of that. Eyewitnesses were telling again and again of, of it for sure. And, and in their sermons, it's, it's emphasized again and again. But still there was something that they didn't understand correctly of the resurrection. So they understood that resurrection of Jesus was true. They believed that there is some, some form of life after death, but they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. That was what we just read. So that was they, their main problem. They just thought that there will be some spiritual life where we are raised, but not. The body has, has no role, role in that. So that, that was they. They mistake, they denial or resurrection. And it's quite natural in, in, in many sense, of course, for anybody to understand that our body will be resurrected. We all know that it will decay there after people 
after the death, so how it can be resurrected. So for the human brain, it's not easy to comprehend. And also the Greek uh, philosophy of, of, the, of that time uh, was strongly favoring so-called dualism, which strictly separated spiritual things. They considered all, everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad, evil. That was their true belief in, in their the philosophy. And they waited for the afterlife, but their main motivation for the afterlife is that, okay, then we get rid of all, all the physical things. Then it's only spiritual. But only the souls are there or spirits of the human beings are there. This can be seen, for example, when we read, read Paul, Paul's visit in, in Athens, Acts 17 and 32. What happened there? When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Others said, okay, we want to hear more. So they didn't believe, believe in, the, in, in the resurrection. That was out of their understanding. And of course, today, if you go and ask people about the resurrection, many wouldn't believe in it. Many are strictly materialistic, materialists, which believe that the body is totally unrelated, un extinct. Nothing survives after the death. This is the most typical. Belief in the Western world. Well, there are some religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, most notably which teaches reincarnation, where the soul or spirit is, is recycled, you die, so then your soul is moving to, to some other body, perhaps even the body of an animal, depending on how well you behave here. And you have to suffer then in the next life of all the wrongdoings. But little by little, so when you get when you live better and better and you are able to give up all the desires, then your soul will find the rest, will be merged to the, to the God, which is all over. Return to the universal consciousness. So in all these, these ways of thinking there, the Personhood of, of human and individually are totally lost after the death. So very similar thinking actually what the, or close, close what the Greek were having at that time. Okay, let's now analyze what Paul had to say, say for, for these people and, and how he, what he see, what's the role of, of resurrection. And I have divided Paul's uh, writing here there in, in three parts. In the first part, He's going through the consequences if there is no resurrection. So he starts with that. And let's read it again. We read it once, but let's read it again. Because then to get better understanding of what, it is, what, what was the intention of Paul. But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So it was preached there, but still some were saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has, been not, has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. 
If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So he had very strong arguments. What happens if Christ has not been is not risen from the dead? So the preaching is in vain. Their faith is in vain. Apostles are false witnesses. Then the Corinthians, they are still in their sins. Those who are died in Christ, they have perished. You don't see them any, ever again. And even us who have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all the men. These Christians there, when they confessed Jesus, that also meant that they are in trouble. It was not an easy life for them. They were persecuted there. They were laughed at. And if they have no future hope, what was the point? The most pitiable of all the men. And truly, as a great preacher, Spurgeon once, once said in his sermon, you must give up all your hope of salvation the moment you doubt your Lord's rising from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so critical for our belief. And Paul, in Romans 4 and 25, states it so clearly. He was delivered over to death for our sins. So Jesus died because of our sins. And he was raised to life for our justification. Justification means that we can have the right position before God. If Jesus wouldn't have risen, we wouldn't have been justified. And we have no hope. And we could just go home now. Should we go? If you don't believe that Jesus is risen, go away. This is not your place. You have better things to do. I don't go because I truly believe that he's risen. And soon, together with you, I will proclaim it to the whole world that he is risen. And my sins are, have been washed away and I'm justified. But there you see, the doctrine of resurrection is very important for our faith. Without it, there wouldn't be any salvation. It was necessary for Jesus not only to die, but also to rise. Part B of Paul's thinking. Call it Christ and our resurrection. Let's read verses 20 to 23 again. Now Paul changes his tone. Earlier he was speculating, what, if, what happens if Christ was not risen? And now he says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Actually, he uses the same saying four times in this, this chapter. And this is very strong way. The Greek words that he is using is, is, describes the most, the thing which is the most sure, something that you can't doubt. Paul has no doubts about it. He had seen so many eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ, and he has also met Jesus Christ himself. You remember when Paul was converted, Jesus came to talk to him. Christ has indeed been raised from the death, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. 
So let's analyze this. So starting point is God is uh, Christ is risen. There are three points. Christ is the first voice, the first one to rise. I will come back to that soon. Second point relates Adam. In Adam all die, so in Christ also be made alive in the second coming of Christ. I'll come back to that also soon. And then his third point, that everything must come, must happen in the proper order. So what was the Jewish expectation regarding the resurrection? Like I said, they were expecting that there is some sort of resurrection. They expected, they were waiting for the coming, for the coming of God's kingdom. They were waiting for the Messiah to come. And the God's kingdom where they will be. They are leading the whole world. And part of that expectation was also that the righteous dead will be risen to share in the new kingdom. And for this, this kind of belief, they, they could use like Isaiah 26, 19, which says, but your dead will live, Lord. Their bodies will rise. Let those who dwell in the dust wake up and shout for joy. But still not all of them didn't believe in resurrection. Sadducees, powerful party at that time, they didn't, for example. Acts 23 and 8 tells about that, that this, this, this party says there's no re resurrection. They didn't believe in, in angels, no spirits. But Pharisees, they believed, they strongly believed in the resurrection. So that was the expectation. So one day the Messiah will come. He will restore Israel. And also part of that will be that the faithful dead will rise. That was the expectation. But now Paul tells, yeah, you've got it almost right. In the end of the history, God's people will be raised. But there's one exception, one person has been raised already in the middle of the history. Jesus risen. That was, the, that was the change in the understanding. Meaning that the coming of God's kingdom happens in two, two phases. And that's why he also emphasized that there must be a proper order. That was the order that, that God planned. Jesus first, and then in the end, all the others. That means that the age of God's kingdom has not been, has not come in its fullness. We are still waiting for Jesus' second coming, Parousia. One day he will come back. Do you believe in that? Do you wait for that? Yes, he will one day. He has promised that he will come back. And he will do it. Oh, he could do it right now. But he, perhaps he lets me to finish my sermon. But God's kingdom, it's not fully here, but it's real already. We can taste its power already, parts of its power. Some first fruits, first taste of it. This has been the case in this sermon.
It was so nice to praise God, feel His presence. This is like the first experiences that we can feel here. And one day, hopefully soon, we will have the fullness of the God's kingdom. Christ is the first fruits. His resurrection body is the sample and guarantee that the future body, that our bodies will be also resurrected. First fruits, Paul took the term from Old Testament, from Leviticus. They are the Israelites, when they harvested their crops, they first took a small part of it when they started to harvest it, then brought it to the temple, and that was offered to the God. That's called the first fruits. It was a sign that all the harvest belongs to the, to the God. And after that offering, then they harvested the rest. But it was not only a sign, but it was, it was like an example that more is, more is to come. It's a model of the rest what will come. And this is what Jesus is for us. His resurrection body is the model of our resurrection body. His resurrection is the model what will happen to all of us. So let's have a look at what kind of resurrection body Jesus had. And you will have one day exactly the same kind of, of body. After his resurrection, Jesus could be recognized as Jesus. The disciples recognized him. On the Emmaus road, Jesus need, needed to hide his identity. Some special interventions needed there so that the two disciples wouldn't recognize him. Jesus himself came out and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. So Jesus had to keep them. I don't want to now show who you are. Then he entered the, the, the disciples, oh, it's Jesus. So resurrection body looks very much what you look now. And that looks perfect because you are perfect. God designed you. Jesus some flesh and bones. And some of the marks of his crucifixion. Luke continues. Jesus said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. He could be touched. Jesus said, touch me and see. I'm not a cost. He could eat. Do you have anything here to eat? Then they gave him some, some fish. And he took it and ate Still, it was not the same kind of body thought like, like he had earlier. Because he could just miraculously appear in a locked room. John tells about this, John 20, 19 and 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Not a typical body. It was a body that can be touched, but still the walls didn't stop him. And he could ascend to heaven. Acts 1 and 9 tells about this, how Jesus was taken to the heaven. Body matters. You will have a resurrected body. Somehow similar to what Jesus had. Then he also says something about Adam Christ. Typology. A couple of words also that to understand why, why did he just suddenly took Adam there 
into the consideration. So typology is a method in the biblical interpretation where you take some element from the Old Testament and see it is a, some prefigure which is then found in the New Testament. And here, Adam, they are called, the, the New Testament part is called a type, and, and uh, Old Testament is, is, is type, and anti-type is the New Testament correspondence. So here the type is Adam, whose sin brought death to all, and anti-type is Jesus, whose holiness brought life to all. So because we all, we are identified with Adam, we are human beings, we are subject to death. So that's the message from Adam. But because you are identified with Christ, when you have been born again in him, that means that you are also subject to resurrection, to eternal life. So, nice connection between these two persons. So here, in this section, Paul moved from speculation into certainty. Our resurrection will take place when Jesus comes back. One day, if you die, you don't have to worry about the death. One day, you will be resurrected. We don't know yet. Matthew 24 says, but nobody knows when, it, when Jesus will return back. We are not supposed to know it. We just know that one day he will come back. And the resurrection includes also our bodies. Paul in the, later on also tells more about this body, what kind of body we are having. It will be spiritual, imperishable, glorious, powerful. Like Jesus' body after the resurrection. No more sicknesses, no problems, all this hurting back, it's then over. No more hurting knees or any headaches or never tired anymore. I can run as long as wish. I can do whatever I do. I will, it will be a perfect body. You will have a perfect body. And we will recognize each other. He can remember. He was sitting with me, the dear brother, dear sister. And how great he or she looks like. Then the last part, the last verses, which are telling how Christ delivers the kingdom to God. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God, the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does, does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him, who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. So, what we just heard that Jesus will put end to all rule, all authority and power. First, Christ will be reigning here until he, together with God, will put all the enemies under, under Christ's feet. The last enemy to be totally destroyed is death. And because sin relates to death also, sin is totally destroyed at that time. And then finally, when all is made subject to Christ, then Christ will also subject to Father God everything. So, 
Christ and God together will conquer permanently every enemy of God. Paul uses here Psalm 110 and 1, which is actually the most quoted scripture in the New Testament. He has put all his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy is death. There will be no death. There will be no sin. The day will come. It's for sure. And then, in the end, then Jesus will hand over his kingship to the Father, be subject to the Father. So he is still obedient to God. He was obedient to come and die for us. He said, let your will be done, not mine. I don't want to die the horrible death in the cross, but let your will be done. And here he is still obedient. He says, now take this, rule this. The Father God, Son God, Holy Spirit, they are all equal. They all have equal powers, but they have different roles. This doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow under the God. Jesus just gives, take this role which is planned for you. This is your role. I have my role. Son's work is to defeat all evil in the, on the earth. And Father's work is then to be the sovereign of all eternity. But, but absolutely doesn't mean that Jesus is somehow lower than Father God. No, they are having the same power, same glory. So, conclusions. Jesus is risen. We, other signs, will be risen. There will be a day when I meet my grandfathers, when I meet my grandmothers, when I meet so many of my great friends. Oh, I wait also for that day. Resurrection involves also our bodies. Jesus didn't, God didn't create your body, some, something that has to be destroyed. Your body will be redeemed. And this has also some implications. Your physical body is nothing evil. It's not, not something that you should escape from. It's a body meant for you. Everything is, is, is good. Sexuality is good. Sexuality, for example, is not evil, even though many think that it is. No, it's a good thing. And it's also a message for all of us that we should take care of our bodies. It's not evil. It's something part of God's creation, and so important part that it will be resurrected in the future. God is sovereign. He will have victory over all the enemies, including sin and death. You don't have to fight for the victory, for example, over sin. But you can fight from the position of the victory. I try to do this when I see that, okay, I can't Resist the temptation on my own, I say. God, you have the victory. I don't need to fight. You have already won. I just accept this victory. I don't need to sin because you have won. So understanding this helps a lot. Don't fight for the victory. Victory is already yours. You can just participate it here. You are an overcomer. Not because of you, but because God is sovereign over all enemies, even over sin and death. You don't have to be worried of anything. He has conquered the grave. He is alive 
He is praying for you. And one day he will make everything perfect.